Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray once more. Father, to, to come before your word is immense, both for us to, to receive it, uh, for me to take on the task of proclaiming it. So, Father, I'm thankful for, for sovereign grace, that this is a task that rests on your omnipotent hands, not my own. And please help us, Lord, to have open minds and hearts that we would receive the word, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, that your Spirit would do this work in us, that indeed we would glorify you in all things forevermore through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So if you can imagine with me for a moment, uh, teenagers. Let's take a teenage boy, and let's, let's say this teenage boy, we'll imagine he's a good East Tennessee boy. He wants, to, he wants to be really good at football. He wants to be a very good quarterback. And as one would expect, his favorite player is Peyton Manning. So let, let's say he's, he's wanting to become the best, and he, he gets to meet Peyton Manning. And Peyton Manning spends time with him and tells him everything he needs to know so that he can be the best quarterback he can be. He tells him about what he needs to do to train his skills, about how he needs to work out and train his body, how he needs to uh, even structure his diet, how he needs to go about studying film, how he needs to develop leadership skills if he's going to lead a team. He goes through all these things. If, if that boy really wants to be the best, if he really looks up to Peyton Manning as a role model for what he wants to do, what's he going to do with all that instruction? He's going to do every little thing, isn't he? There's not, there's not a bit of that that he's going to leave on the table and set aside. If he really wants to achieve his goal, he's going to take every little thing and fully pursue it. He's not going to say, well, this seems excessive, and I really want to keep eating at McDonald's and just kind of pick and choose. That would show that he doesn't actually want his goal. And he doesn't actually look up to the person who has given him the instruction. If he truly looks up to him, if he truly wants to pursue this goal, he is going to fully come under the instruction that he has been given. And in a similar fashion, we as Christians, we have a higher calling than being a quarterback or being an MVP or whatever it is. We have a far higher calling than any sports or anything that we uh, are, are interested in in ourselves. We are called with the heavenly calling of God in Christ Jesus. This, this is it. This is the highest calling that human beings can have, to be called to honor the living God in Christ for all of eternity. And it requires more of us. Uh, you know, you think about what a quarterback has to do. It sounds daunting. Being a Christian requires more. We've been talking about in this last section, starting in Romans 12, the calling of being a Christian is to present your entire self, your, your, your living bodies as a sacrifice that's wholly acceptable to God. That is all that we are in full submission to the word of God, to the will of God. That's more demanding. And yet with, with this high calling, with all that it requires, we have an in immense sovereign help, such that this calling does not rest on us. It rests on the triune God, the God who has predestined us for adoption in Christ, who in Christ has brought about that redemption by shedding his own blood 
to pay for his people's sins and by the Spirit makes us new creations, gives us a down payment of our inheritance, and gives us the power then to fulfill this calling that we can present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So the main thing we're going to talk about this morning in, in closing out Romans is that by God's word, our lives are to be characterized by a faith resulting in obedience that is both from God and for God. I'll say it again. By God's word, our lives are to be characterized by a faith resulting in obedience that is both from God and for God. So to, to give us um, a bit of context here, we've been, uh, I'll just sum up the whole book of Romans quickly. We've been seeing the glory of God in Christ. God has revealed his glory by sending his son. His son came and was descended from David. He overcame Satan, sin, and death, was declared to be the Son of God, empowered by the resurrection. That gospel has gone forward to all nations. Because all nations, all peoples, Jew, Gentile, all of us, our commonality is that we're dead in our sins. And we need newness of life. And God has brought that about in Christ. And God has so worked that, that gospel through Christ, that we now should do what Paul did at the end of chapter 11, and praise the name of the Lord. And our response, in addition to praise, is to present our bodies as sacrifices for further praise to God. That we would indeed be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would discern what is the pleasing and acceptable will of God. So Paul, here in this, in this last section, is recapping a lot of those threads, tying them together here at the end uh, in this, this closing section. Um, I'm a man of the people. I know you all woke up this morning thinking, we need a chiasm. We need, we need a chiasm to look at this morning. So your handout is your indicator that I am, I am a man of the people. I have brought you what you desire. I'm just kidding. I know no one woke up this morning wanting a chiasm. But in God's providence, here you go. So a chiasm, I'll just explain what a chiasm is. A chiasm comes from the Greek word chi. It's in English, it looks like the letter X. So you have this sort of shape. And, and a chiasm is just referring to how a passage, uh, typically of scripture, uh, how a passage of scripture is outlined. So if you look at your handout, I'll explain what I mean here. You can see if you go A to B to C, you see how I've indented. I guess for you it's going to look like this. So it's going like this towards the middle, and then it comes back out at the end, kind of like the half of an X. That's where you get the chiasm name from. And what it means is, to simplify it, you see how there's an A at the top, and then there's an A at the bottom. The beginning and the end correspond with one another. And then, then it, and so it's going to go like that towards the middle. Those points are going to correspond as you go towards the middle. So to explain, this passage we're looking at says, now to him, and what's coming to him? Well, it says in, in the bottom, the other point A, to the only wise God, so that's who him is, it's the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So the him at the beginning is God the Father. And what is he receiving? He's receiving praise forevermore. Point B now to him who is able to strengthen you, and what's he strengthening us to do? Look at the second point B there towards the, the bottom. He's strengthening you to bring about the obedience of the faith. And then in these middle points, there's three points for C. I'll explain why later. How is he strengthening us? Through the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Through the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. 
according to or through the command of the eternal God. So what this means is God is strengthening us for the obedience of the faith by his word. His word is giving us power so that we would praise him. And I think this, this uh, passage is structured in this way to point us at the word. So we'll talk more about that as we go. So we're going to pick up. We've, we've discussed um, um, the first portion of this passage, and I'm going to recap it here, and then we'll, we'll just pick up right where we left off. So it starts with, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ. Or you could, you could translate that, according to my gospel, that is the preaching of Jesus Christ. So we have been discussing how we are, we've talked about this salvation work, this work by which God makes us new creations. He does that through the word. It is through the gospel. When he, when he says, according to my gospel, he's saying, this is the means. This is how I do this. This is where the power comes from. It's through the gospel that is the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We have entered into that salvation. And what Paul's reminding us here is that we continue in that salvation also by God's power at work in the gospel. We start, at, or we, we continue as we start, is what Paul's reminding us of here. And so that's why we talked about how it's, it's so important that we have to focus on the gospel and proclaim the word to ourselves, to one another, to all those around us who are lost, because this is the power of God to salvation. We must speak the word. We must proclaim the gospel. And now, Paul is expanding on that point. He's saying, if you, if you want to look with me in, uh, if you can look at the outline, if you want to look at the outline, you can look at the text, if you want to look with me at the text. He says that this gospel, this preaching of Jesus Christ, is also according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So what he's doing here, you have these three points here that I put in, in section C. The gospel is the fulfillment of, the culmination of this mystery that is contained in the prophetic writings, which I take because there's, there's a parallel with that phrase, prophetic writings, back in chapter 1, specifically pertaining to the Old Testament. The gospel is the fulfillment of all that God had promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The gospel that gives us power is the gospel that is contained in the Old Testament. And in that gospel is the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. So to start off, let's talk about this idea of, of mystery. I, I did not know we were going to sing Come Praise and Glorify this morning, but that's going to be helpful. It's, it sums it up. Um, uh, additionally, the author that I think has been the most helpful for me in understanding this idea of what, what is this mystery that you see referred to throughout Scripture is probably G.K. Beale. He talks about mystery a lot. Um, so as you listen to me, if you end up reading him or if you have read him and you think I sound a lot like that, it's because I've been really helped. So I'm trying to not plagiarize right now. That's what I'm trying to do. No subtext. Um, th this idea of mystery, if we look at where we first see it, in scripture, it starts in Daniel 2. The first time you see the word mystery in the ESV uh, is Daniel 2. And Beale argues that that is the Old Testament foundation for what Paul writes about when he writes about this concept of mystery. And in Daniel 2, you might know off the top of your head already, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He has this dream, 
and there's a statue with essentially four parts, and then this stone crushes that statue. And then that stone grows into a mountain that fills the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar sees all this. He sees what hap- what's happening, but he's clueless as to what the meaning is. He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. It's a mystery to him. So what happens? Daniel comes along, and God, through Daniel, reveals to Nebuchadnezzar exactly what the meaning is. So mystery is something that is vague and requires clarifying that God later provides clarity to. The song, if I can try to get the the lyrics right, in him God has made known to us the mystery of of his will, that Christ should be the head of all, his purpose to fulfill. What that means is the mystery in the Old Testament, there's all these types, there's all these shadows, and all of them, every single one of them is coming towards Christ. That was not readily apparent. Certainly, there's an aspect to which in the Old Testament, it was clear that they were waiting for a king. There was a seed of the woman that was coming to crush the head of the serpent. That seed of the woman was ultimately going to be the seed of Abraham. He was going to be from the line of Judah. He was going to be the son of David. He was going to be the king who provides salvation to God's people. And yet, when we look at a passage like 1 Peter 1, it talks about how the prophets who were saying these things still knew there was more to this that they weren't seeing. and They longed to see its fulfillment. They longed to see what this would look like when God brought it about. So, we, who are members of the New Covenant, we have seen this. We have seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ, who fulfills all things, who fills all in all. So we, it's kind of like, if you've ever read a, a, a mystery novel, the first time you read it, you're guessing pretty much the whole time. The second time you read it, you're like, oh, well, there's that, and then there's that, and then there's that. And now it's, it's hardly called a mystery at that point. It's more of a puzzle that you're looking at with all the pieces right where they're supposed to be. And that's, that's the nature of this mystery that Paul's referring to here. The, the mystery was kept secret for long ages. It wasn't clear exactly how Christ was going to come and fulfill all things. But now for us who are living in the new, new covenant era, we see, we saw all of it come to his head in Christ. And so just to give some examples, some things that would have that we can see with, with clarity now that would not have necessarily been readily apparent to them, just to give a few examples. Uh, the first that came to my mind was the fulfillment of the temple. You see, you see a typological line. There's Eden, but because of sin, Adam and Eve are cast out. The tabernacle becomes the next instance of God dwelling with man, and it's a new portable Eden. And then you have the temple that's next in line there. But, but what's, what's the next thing that comes? It's God in flesh tabernacling among us. That's the language used in John 1. Christ in John 2, becoming the fulfillment of the temple that he destroys but raises in three days. I don't think they had an idea that the temple fulfillment would be God in a body with them. And when I say God in a body, fully human in every aspect. Additionally, the idea, and we, this is something that you, Paul had talked about in Romans 7, the idea that Christ would come and so fulfill the law that his people would not actually be under the old covenant law as a covenant because it had been fulfilled in their Savior, I don't think that was readily apparent to them. Additionally, the fact that because of that fulfillment of the law in Christ, that Gentiles would become equal co-heirs with Gentiles, Gentiles become equal co-heirs with the Jews 
without even having to be circumcised. I don't think that was readily apparent for the readers of the Old Testament. That, 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 the, 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 that the Messiah would come, offer himself as such a perfect sacrifice that there would no longer be a need for blood sacrifices. I don't think that was readily apparent. And yet here we are. The book of Hebrews is telling us we don't need, we don't need it. All of, all of the blood that was needed for us to be perfectly atoned for has already been spilled. The fact that the incarnate God, or the God would come incarnate, that, that God the Son would come fully as man and suffer in such profound ways. It's, it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but was it clear? No. And yet we see all these glorious things, obvious things to us now, because of how God has revealed his glory in Christ. The depth of this suffering, the the awesomeness of this glory that all things would find their fulfillment in Christ. We we are blessed. There's, There's a necessary response that we should have to all of this. So if you'll turn with me over to Luke 10 quickly. In Luke 10, um, Jesus has sent out his 70 disciples. He is, he is showing how he is restoring what had been undone at Babel. Babel, these 70 nations, gets dispersed. Christ is sending out his 70 disciples because he's regathering all peoples toward God in proper faith and submission. And now he's, he's re- reflecting on this with the disciples. And this is what he says in Luke 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them, that's the same word that Paul had just used in Romans 16, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We have been shown the glory of the living God by Jesus Christ. That's that's what we have in this new covenant that's been brought about by Christ. And then look what happened. What look at what Christ says next. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, "Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We have Old and New Testament together. Prophets, kings, longed for this. We have it in print. We have it in our pockets. We are unspeakably blessed to see the glory of God in Christ and to have it so readily available in the scriptures. So if you'll turn back to Romans 16 with me, we should be thankful. (laughs) Application point one. And point one through infinity, we should be thankful for what God has given us. <laughs> Additionally, if this is the blessing that it is, and it is, we should study it. We should we should drink deeply of this word. And I, I'm not trying to just throw out some sort of Sunday school platitude of read your Bible more. I'm saying we need to spend less time maybe watching TV being on social media, or even maybe taking a job that requires less hours and making less money so we can have more time to be in the Word. 
I'm saying we really need to be in the word and we really have to reckon with what things are getting in the way of it. Um, some of you might have been this example. I know I was. Um, sometimes you have a, a child who, who knows their parents have Christmas gifts in the house. They know it. And it doesn't really matter if they're a, a smart child, a big child, or whatever. Or they don't have to be very capable. What will they do? They will turn the entire house upside down trying to find the gift. It doesn't matter if they're able to or not. If you think, like, this small child, how could they turn the house upside down? If there's something worth finding, they will. Why is it? They know the value of what can be found. Because they desire what can be found. Paul is reminding us at the end of Romans that what characterizes Christians is a profound desire to know the word of God. It's, it's an immense book. I mean, just literally lifting, this is a heavy book. And this is just a few pounds, let alone the meaning, which is of infinite weight. Heaven and hell. It can be overwhelming. And yet, I, I want to remind us here, if we feel overwhelmed by the task, if we feel like we're too weak to even open up the word, let me tell you, what Paul's saying here is that God is able to strengthen you through the gospel through the revelation of the mystery, what he's saying is you don't come to the word if you're strong. You come to the word so you can become strong. This is the power, not us. There's no, there's no we have to conjure the strength and then we can open it. It is we come to it for the strength, for the power, and God grants it by his grace because God's word creates. God made everything by his word. His word came incarnate and died on a cross and rose again that by the word, the triune God would make a new creation. God's word is the power. We don't need power to access God's word. God's word gives us the power and causes us to access him by his grace. Does this mean we're going to come to the word and in one sitting microwave into an instantly mature Christian? No, it does not. I'm sorry, it does not. But I think there's glorious and gracious reasons for this. Paul has told us that God is seeking to renew our minds, to transform us. And that takes time. It, it is, it is a, a blessing, and you see this in Romans 5, it is a blessing because it helps us to be patient and to have endurance. So even the slow process of growing in strength and grace is a blessing of God. And I, there's other reasons that this makes sense as well. This mystery of how Christ fills all in all, it needs some time to study. I don't know that we're going to ever stop studying because it's so profound. It makes sense that our growth process would match the depth of the glory of God revealed in Christ. There's a lot of glory of God to behold. It makes sense that he would give us a, a word that would be perfectly suited for the time that it takes us to grow in Christ. But we still need to grow. We need to come to this for the power, and God will be faithful to help us grow, even as that renewing and transforming does take time. But even that, like I'm trying to say, that, that time, that patience of God worked in us, 
to make us endure, that is a blessing. And what's the result here? As we, as we seek to study the word, as we seek to meditate on the gospel, the result is that we are going to be better suited to serve our church and to proclaim the gospel to the nations. It, it, it is by this word that we have any power to bless and help one another. It is the Spirit working through this sword that makes us able to fend off Satan and to help and encourage one another. Additionally, it is this word that has the power to save. Paul has said that uh, this is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So there's, there's a tension there. He's saying that the, all nations are receiving the gospel as the Old Testament is proclaimed to them. So what he's telling us is that it is our study of the word and including the Old Testament, that is the power by which Gentiles, those who are far off, are brought near. We should study the word for many reasons. One of, the, one of them being is that this is how the world is saved. And you see this in the early church. Uh, in Family Devotions recently, we were going through uh, Acts 8, and Philip's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and what's he looking at? He's not looking at the Gospel of John. He's going to Isaiah. It's what he had, and he used it, and God saved him. It's powerful. We need to be in the Word. We need to be people of the Word because it has power to save the nations. The, Paul had talked about this in Romans 4, Abraham being the father of our faith. When we go and proclaim this Word to the nations, we are fulfilling what God has called us to do in that covenant to Abraham. Christ being the true seed of Abraham. We tell them about that seed, the nations are now blessed. They bless Christ and they are blessed in him. And as that goes forward, like Paul transitions into Romans 5, this is how the new and better Adam is filling the earth with image bearers that proclaim the glory of God until this earth is renewed and filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the seas. So if I can just, obviously I'm hammering this drum of we need to study the scriptures. And let me just say here with what Paul's saying, about this mystery revealed and how the proclamation of even the Old Testament is bearing fruit and being made to, known to all nations so the gospel will go forward. If, if we want to have the most motivation to, to be diligent in reading and studying the scriptures, we need to read for others, not for ourselves, and primarily for God. We need to read to know the glory of God. We need to read then also to bless God's people. And we need to read to make God's glory known to all nations. That's how you get out of bed in an early cold morning ready to read. Not because it's just, oh, I, I think I'll be better if I read my Bible. But I also know this pillow is really good for me as well. Now, that's a wrestle that we're often going to lose. When we wake up and we know I need the glory of God, your pillow's not going to give you that. The Bible will. The gospel, the, the revelation of this mystery, what Paul's laying out for us here, this is the fulfillment of all things. All things find their meaning in Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming the message, not just a good one, not just, oh, that's a cool headline. This is the headline that takes sinners 
and makes them new in Christ that they would know God and fulfill what they were designed for in Christ. This is the only gospel as well. There's, there's not another one. This is it. We have to treat it with the seriousness and glory that it deserves. We have to believe this gospel and believe this word. We need to grow in our understanding of the word, and we need to obey the word, which is where we're going to be going. We need to obey this word so that we would show ourselves to be people of God who are of the word and not people who are of the world. So, God is able to strengthen us according to the gospel, according to this mystery that's been revealed, that was contained in the Old Testament writings, and this next part of verse 26, according to the command of the eternal God. It's really interesting. When I was researching this, where Paul's calling God the eternal God, he refers to God over 150 times in Romans alone. And yet, from what I was seeing, this is the, the only time he calls God the eternal God. So if it's the only time, it's at the very end, and he said his name over and over, the question is, why? Why the eternal God all of a sudden? And I, I think the reason is, is that it's, it's a temporal marker, eternity, that has to do with time. And I think it's to help us frame what he's saying in a moment in time. So if you look with me at my chiasm, and really, it's not my chiasm. I think this is how it's supposed to be structured. So I might be wrong, but let's look at the word as I've indented it on this piece of paper. It says, according to the command of the eternal God. Now, if you, if looking at what we're talking about, the gospel, that is the preaching of Jesus Christ, that's new covenant. The mystery that's contained in the prophetic writings, that's old covenant. So we're going backwards in redemptive history through this passage. So we have the gospel, that's the new covenant, prophetic writings, that's old covenant, now the command of the eternal God. I think this is pulling us into eternity past. And what has God done in eternity past? He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless. That is the command of the eternal God. In eternity past, commanding that there would be redemption for humanity, that in Christ we would be made holy and blameless. And I, I think, too, there's a, a Trinitarian shape to this, because what I'm saying, the command of the eternal God, over in Ephesians 1, what I was just quoting, that is speaking specifically of God the Father. Additionally, the prophetic writings in, in that middle point, C2, the prophetic writings, how did they write? As the Spirit carried them along. And, and as the Spirit carried them along and they wrote, who were they writing about? They're writing about the gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ. C1 is God the Son. C2, God the Spirit. C3, God the Father. That's, I think that's what's going on here. Suffice it to say, if, if you're not convinced there, I, that's fine. The point being, this is, this is the strength of the triune God at work in us. The power of the triune God through the word to bring about what we're going to see the obedience of the faith. But before we get there, I want to I highlight that this, this command of the eternal God, if I'm right, and I, I think I am, 
according to the command of the eternal God. Who fulfills that command? In Ephesians 1, the one who fills all in all is Christ. Not anyone here. It is Christ who fulfills this command of the eternal God. Christ is the means by which we receive this power. Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection gives us power so that as we put our faith in him by his strength, we obey him by his strength. It is from God and for God that we live and the perfect fulfillment of the command of the eternal God does not come through us, it comes through Jesus Christ. So we are strengthened through the gospel, through the revelation of the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, according to the command of the eternal God, even from eternity past. And why? To bring about the obedience of the faith. We only bring that about because of God's strength. And God's word is powerful. And he does that in us. So a few more reflections. Obviously, I'm going to return to this because I I mentioned it once. This is in here three times, so I'm not going to apologize. We need the word of God. We need to study the word of God. We need to be serious about the word of God. We need to be thankful for where we are in redemptive history, to see all these things filled in Christ, this is a blessing. We should be profoundly grateful. We were talking about this um, just a moment ago, I, just thinking about what it would be like to be an Israelite reading these stories about Jacob and Laban, and it's all messy, and you don't, you don't necessarily have the clearest picture of how it's all going to resolve. It's hard enough to just read it now, but then to not know that it's going to be resolved in Christ? We are blessed to live when we live. We shouldn't become guilty of chronological snobbery and fussing, uh, to to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. Additionally, it is a blessing to obey God. When we think of obedience, especially as Americans, and, and primarily as sinners, we think of the idea of obedience. We don't like it. We love our freedom. We love being able to do whatever we want. And I don't think that's uniquely because of us being American. That's just like I was indicating. It's because we're sinners. Obedience is what we're made for. We are made to obey God. That's what it means to be an image bearer. In uh, Romans 1, Paul had talked about how Christ had come, descended uh, from David according to the flesh, And yet by his obedience, even unto the cross and his death on the cross, he is declared to be the son of God in power. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is the reason that doxology at the end of Romans 11, he's the reason that happens, that we can know that glory. His obedience results in his exaltation. Obedience is the pathway for humanity to enter into glory. Obedience is not a curse. Obedience is blessing. We see that in Philippians 2 as well, that he was obedient unto death, and therefore he has been given the name that is above every name. The obedience of Christ is the pathway to his exaltation, and we are similarly designed to follow in that path. So I hope I've made it clear. We believe in sola fide. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We cannot save ourselves. It is God's power 
through his word, by the spirit, in Christ, that saves us. We don't do that. We don't add to that. And yet at the same time, James 2 is in the Bible. If we claim to have faith, but we do not have works, that faith is dead. It is not really faith. We are not really saved. There is, there is no salvation for someone who claims to have faith and it has no regard to acknowledge that Christ is their king and they have to obey him. Hebrews 12 tells us, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We must live out this faith in obedience. We don't, we don't, we don't make our salvation. We don't add to it. But to, to think that we can have this faith and not follow the king that we say we believe in, that's a false gospel. That is a false gospel. Faith in works. Faith leading to works. Properly understood. Our faith in salvation resting in Christ, but then our works showing that we truly believe in him, that he is at work in us. They must be there together. To lose one is to lose everything. I'm hoping that tension is clear. If it's not, please come after me right afterward, and I will do everything I can to show from the scriptures what I mean and what the scriptures mean. I think, though, for us as Americans, we have to be careful with this idea of legalism. Um, legalism, I think, properly defined is this idea that I can either save myself or that Christ's salvation of me is not sufficient, and so I have to add to it. That's, that's legalism properly understood. I think we've gotten to the point in American evangelicalism where legalism has now become, that person's really zealous, and it makes me uncomfortable. That's not legalism. That's edification oftentimes. <laughs> but we don't, we don't like that sort of edification, so we try to label it and push it aside. We should not do that. At all times, and in all ways, we must surrender to Christ and acknowledge that he is king and we must obey him. So, You've probably sat through a sermon, I have, and the, the preacher starts saying something, you're like, I think he's thinking about me. I'm thinking about every single one of you, and including myself. You're not the king. That's a really important message. And I know it sounds simplistic and reductionistic, but the fact of the matter is we all wrestle with that every single day. You are not the king. I have to tell my boys that every day. I have to tell myself that every day. You are not the king, and you will be blessed if you recognize that. Our marriages belong to Christ. Men, you need to lead. Women, you need to submit. Our parenting and children belong to Christ. We need to teach them the word so that they would be saved. And dads, it starts with us. And we need to teach them. They're not the king. That their obedience to mommy and daddy is a reflection of how they're treating God. And that's why obedience matters so much for children. Our work belongs to God. We need to do it heartily and be content with it. Even if we're not necessarily doing the job we want or making the money we want, we have to do what God's called us to do. We have to do it heartily. All the stuff that we own, the health that we have, these things, God sometimes wants us to be content in, in much, and sometimes he wants us to be content in need. And we need to do all that to the glory of God because he is a king. 
We need to serve this church. I mean, this is the body of Christ. This is, this is God's family, and we need to serve one another accordingly. And this is helpful for, for those of us um, who maybe tend towards the more zealous and mature side. It's helpful to think about Christ being the king over this body. Because what that does for us is it reminds us that it is his word that is the standard for maturity for those around us. I cannot come in here saying, you have to, you have to be like me. There's a certain thickness to glasses that's appropriate for a man of God and a certain like type of fit. You need to have a beard to be a real man. I can't go to the scriptures and tell you these things. I, I am not the king here, and I can't make the standards. And like we see how this fails. Like saying, well, if you're a real man, you're going to grow a beard. Well, if anything should have been learned in our hipster day and age, you can have a beard and not be much of a man. So, But there's the point, though. It is God's word that is both the standard for maturity, and as we minister the word to one another, we actually, as we minister that word, give power to those around us. Because when I tell you you should have glasses like mine, nothing changes because my words don't create. When I go to someone and say, this is what the word of the Lord says, there is now power entered in that situation so that that person, by God's grace, can grow. Because God's word's effective. So God's word is the standard and the power by which the mature can help the immature grow. Christ is king. We come under his word, and his word has power to grow his church. This is, this is important for us. <clears throat> We have to be fully surrendered to the king. And if we do, we will, we will immediately find that essentially any sermon is immensely practical. There, I, I'm all, I just gave practicals. I'm not against giving practicals in a sermon. It's fine to have practicalities in a sermon. But I think oftentimes people are like, I just want to reckon with morals. Give me morals. I want to reckon with morals. Give me practicals. And I think a lot of times the reason is morals are easier to deal with than Christ himself. We need to be ready to come to church, hear the word exposited, showing us the glory of God in Christ, and then to reckon with him in full submission. There's a lot of practicals that we all need, and the Spirit is going to work those out as we are fully submitted. So the hinge to the door of opening to practicality in sermons isn't a list, it is our submission. Those little pockets... I am largely obedient to you, God. So please just let me have this cubby. No. He calls every single atom in this universe his, to paraphrase someone at some point. Um, if we try to, to withhold from the king who calls everything his, we are in full rebellion. That is full rebellion, even if it's just a pocket. If it's all his and you're withholding, that is rebellion. And there's no getting around it. So we come in submission, and what we find is grace. God is filled all in Christ. He gives us the power. He gives us the faith by which we are saved. He gives us the, the, that power to save us. He gives us that power to continue us in that salvation. And so all of the, the things that we're talking about, all the immensity and weight of what we're talking about, this rests on God. Submit to him and drink deep of his grace and glory and find comfort in him, not in yourself.
God is bringing about this obedience of faith for a reason. Verse 27, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is what we're made for. This is it. This is our all in all, to glorify God. And this, this entails so many different things. You don't have to be one specific type of person in one specific type of situation. You don't, your life does not have to be the Instagram post where all the children are quiet, you have your coffee, you have your Bible, and the sun's up. You can glorify God in a lot of different situations that are a lot less ideal. We are made to glorify God in all things, and we will glorify God forevermore. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the seas. And this is what I'm saying we're designed for this. To be an image bearer, an image bearer means you are made to reflect God's glory and God's rule. Man was supposed to do this until that end I was talking about. The fullness of God's glory being in the earth was reached. Adam did not do it. None of us can do it. But Christ, the archetype of the image of God, has come. And he is making us into his image that this will be fulfilled. And it helps us because Paul's helping us to see that our real threat and danger one obvious example right now for a lot of us, our real danger is not the government. The government is doing wicked things, overstepping their constitutional bounds, going contrary to the will of God. But and So it is right to pray, pray for conversion, pray for uh, repentance, pray for things to change, to vote accordingly, to do the work that we can. But at the end of the day, that's not a real threat. Because they, Psalm 149 was really helpful for this this morning. What's the end? For the rulers who are in power, who do wicked, they will be judged. And who are they going to be judged by? I hope you notice that. It is God's holy ones with the sword being the word that will sit in judgment over them. So even if our government becomes increasingly wicked to the point that they kill us, that's not the end. So that's not our real danger, is it? They will end up in the same spot that any sinner who doesn't repent ends up. They will end up in hell. And yet we will still have victory over them. That's that's the wisdom of God. It says here, to the only wise God. You see that there's a lot of terms here that are used in Romans 11, and that term wise is there. It's also using 1 Corinthians 1. And that term for the wisdom of God, oftentimes Paul uses that in the context of showing how God has done things that were unexpected. The Messiah dying on a cross. But that supremely convey his glory to the world. Takes the weak and foolish. That's us. And yet, even if we die at the hands of the government, we will overcome by our faithful proclamation of the gospel to whatever end. That is the wisdom of God. To take that which is weak and to make it strong by his strength so that his glory is made known. So what's our real danger? Paul's already shown us, just in the context of Romans 16, the real danger is the sort of false teaching that plays to the sinful desires in our flesh that would make a shipwreck of our faith. That's our danger. It doesn't matter for rich or poor if we have much or little. The danger is if we are not obeying and not putting our faith in God. Paul's identified the danger, and I think this section here at the end is to remind us that God is giving us the power that we might endure, that we might live out the obedience of the faith. What he had said in chapter 1 about bringing about the obedience of the faith through Christ, he's reminding us that God is going to do that in us. He is going to make us a faithful bride to this true and better Adam. 
And it is through this true and better Adam that we have seen the glory of God, that we have uh, we have reason to proclaim the glory of God that we were talking about from the end of chapter 11, that, that incredible doxology that's being mirrored here in verse 27. And it's, it's astounding. In verse 25, I'm not sure why they chose to do this, but I'm going to hopefully try to correct it. In verse 25, it says, Not to him who is able to strengthen you. I don't know why they translated that, not to him who is able, because that word is able, that is powerful. Not to him who is powerful. And that, that same word for power is used in chapter 1. Christ is raised as the Son of God in power, declared to be the Son of God in power. The power at work in Christ to bring about the fulfillment of all things and bring the gospel to all nations that results in the doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11. That's the same power that's at work in each one of us. That even if we live a difficult life following the pattern and example of Christ, even if we go through the same sorts of hardship, we will, by God's power, glorify God just as Christ has. We were talking about this in church or in Sunday school this morning. There's these types and repetitions of patterns to let us know that God's word is absolutely true. He does what he says every single time. So it doesn't matter how hard our life is. It will glorify God because that is what the wise God does to take that which is wise and to show his strength through it. And we see that chiefly at the cross. I would argue that in addition to points C1, 2, and 3 being about the Trinity, I think there's a Trinitarian shape to points A, B, and C. To him, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. I think that's God the Father. Who is strengthening us to bring about the obedience of faith? Who is the one who gives us power to live in holiness? It's the spirit of power. It's the Holy Spirit. And then points three, point, uh, and points C1, 2, and 3 is leading us towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, Spirit, Son, yet again. That, you might not agree with that. That's fine. But the point I'm trying to drive at, at this is in this pattern of difficult living, living in the midst of enmity in a fallen world, we are not alone. God will never leave us or forsake us. The triune God is with us in all things through his Son by the Spirit. And so when we face that, that task of pursuing God's glory in the midst of the, the valley of the shadow of the death, we don't need to fear any evil. God is with us. We just need to surrender to the king. We need to put our faith in him. We need to study his word. We need to obey his word and understand this is the highest calling we could have. This is it. This is what we were made for. There is nothing better. The teenager might think that being like Peyton Manning is the best route to glory. And we have to understand, it is far better to be a homemaker or a common laborer who lives faithfully in the obedience that God has called them to, who lives a life that shouts the glory of God. That is better than being a celebrity, being the MVP, but ultimately living for yourself and not even whispering about the glory of God. That is vanity. This is the wisdom of God, to take the weak and lowly, make them new in Christ, the resurrected, victorious, reigning Savior, and to make his glory known both now and forevermore 
until the earth is indeed filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the seas.